Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have a plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, you can start on day 155. 155. Welcome to the podcast if this is your first time. Uh, as usual, if you're unaware of this, we love to take time as much as we can to answer any of the questions from our beloved listeners in the words of my co-host, Evan. Uh, and there's three ways you can send us those questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Or you can direct message us on social media. We have a Facebook page and we are, have an Instagram page. Uh, our handle there is the Grove CH. Uh, you can DM us there and we get the questions as well. And we look forward to answering those questions before you. All right, this week, this is a busy week. We are uh, yes. We're getting through the rest of the writings of Solomon, and we're getting into we're getting into some of the kings. And the, here's the deal, listeners. I know I know what you were thinking when we announced that this year we were doing the definitive Let's Read the Bible tier list ranking of the kings. You were like, oh my gosh, I can't wait. I know you're, to tune you're in, sitting on the edge of your seat to tune in every week to see where they rank these kings. And you've you realized it's been slow going. Right now we've only ranked Saul and David. Yeah. So, but here's the deal: we're getting ready to rank our third king. Yeah. Spoiler alert: Solomon's going to die in this what? episode, and then so are a few more kings because yes. this is where it starts to get rapid fire. This is where I told Evan earlier. I feel like you slow go David, slow go or slow go Saul. Slower go David, slow Solomon, and then you drop off. A cliff. Yeah, David's so like David month. Get get ready because right. the cliff is coming. Well, let's uh, we're gonna let's start off steamy, listeners. Uh, we're gonna talk about <laughs> the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. Um, I guess as as a fair warning, you know, this is like this is a uh, it's it's the book in the Bible that deals with marital intimacy, and so yes. we're gonna we will talk about that. Um, it's not gonna be the whole episode, but if you're listening with like you know, kids that you don't want to know about that stuff yet, then maybe, maybe skip forward like 20 yeah. minutes or so. And then you'll be, and then you'll be cool. Well, so. and this is one of the books I remember years ago hearing from one of my professors at Northwest. Uh, I don't remember which one you are. So I'm sorry, professor, if you're listening. Um, but they, they'd mentioned like it, Hebrews, like young Hebrew children would memorize a lot of the old Testament, but they were not allowed to read the book Song of Solomon uh, because of how provocative it was. Um, and there's a couple lines in there that I know may come up or whatever, like the idea of don't awaken or arouse love until it's time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a reason for the statement, but it's also the reality of this is a very like in Jewish culture at this time, this was a very provocative, erotic writing. And in so, this economy? In this economy. Um, so anyways, that's that's some of the context here. Some of it's not going to translate directly to our culture today, which is fine. Um, but it still carries a lot of weight and meaning too. So yeah, I, I use this phrase a lot, but it's just the idea of taking off your modern Western world glasses and putting on the glasses, if you can, of an ancient Israelite. And obviously, none of us can do that purpose uh, perfectly because none of us are ancient Israelites. But this is one of the books where it's really, really important to try and view it through the lens and through the culture of the of the people reading. So let's get started. Uh, the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs has probably the widest range of interpretations of any book not named Revelation. <laughs> so if you're, uh, it, it's gone from everything from, so here's the, here's the, here are the options, right? It could be that this is a song written about Solomon. And this is about his marriage to one of his earlier brides, right? Um, and for for my own sanity, I like to think it's his first wife because it's just a bummer to think of all of this, all of this stuff happening with like wife number four or something like that. So I guess that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. I just 
I, I don't no know, matter I don't know what, what I think, but no it's matter, ridiculous. Yeah, no matter what, if the main character is Solomon, it, it the whole thing has this kind of air of like, I mean, she's not that special, but that's a bummer. And it's Wait, that, did I just miss you're not sure if it is Solomon or you just... Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't... I think... So the, there's a few interpretations, right? So it could be Solomon. And I, I shouldn't say she's not special. It's more of like Solomon doesn't think she's as special <laughs> as he says he does in the song. Um, the other one could be it's about an unnamed Israelite couple written in honor of Solomon. And hmm. so the reason you could interpret it that is there's one passage where Solomon is described and he seems like more of a distant figure than um, than the, the main character. So maybe that's what's going on here. Got it. The other interpretation is that this is a, uh, it's an allegory of Yahweh's love for Israel. And as an extension uh, in New Testament interpretations, it can be an allegory of Christ's love for the church. Um, I don't land here. <laughs> Like, uh, I 100% agree. Yeah. So, and here's it gets th- a little weird when you start thinking that way. Yeah. And here's the thing. Like, I, I could go either way on the first two. Um, I, I think I, if, if you, I, I think I land on this is Solomon and one of his early brides, but it would not take, it would just take a, qu- a tiny little shove to get me into the other camp of like, this is just a random Israelite. I think both have merit. Um, I think the book is too sensual for... And this is kind of what you were getting at. I think it's too sensual for a an allegory of God's love for the church. Um, marriage is used as an as an allegory all the time, right? Yes. Like when you go into the prophets, the way that God describes Israel falling away into idolatry is the exact same language of um, committing adultery. So because of that, like the uh, uh, the the implied metaphor is sex, right? Like ad- adultery is when. Um, the husband or the wife has sex with someone else outside of marriage. So when when God is saying that, that is the implied nature of the relation nature of the relationship, at least in the metaphor. Um, so it's not like it's completely out of nowhere that that would be introduced into the allegory, but it's never like a graphic thing. Yeah. That's like this is like and and like when you worship me, it's like a sexual relationship. That's never anywhere in the Bible, right? Yeah. Um, and so I never. think, yeah, <laughs> if, if you're taught that or you think that. I, I'm gonna say you're wrong. Yeah, so there you go. So um, it would be it would be really weird to like have the allegory just turned up to eleven in this book, <laughs> and then kind of just be, and then muted the rest of the yeah. And so that's kind of where we would land. Um, but again, it's it's a uh, there are theologians much smarter than me for many centuries who have interpreted it that way. So I, I'm not going to be like it's stupid. But I just it's hard for me to think that that's the way to. It's okay. I'll uh, say it. it's stupid. It's oh just stupid. Gosh. I'll say it. You were going to go after. A, I was going to try to think of a famous theologian, but I can't now. But what are you going to do? Um, alrighty. So I, like I said, I tend to be in the camp that this is the story of Solomon and his Shulamite bride, um, which is, that's all we kind of know about the woman is that that's where she's from. Uh, And then I said, oh, I put in the notes for my own sanity. I like to think that she was his first wife. Um, So there you go. Uh, Solomon, Song of Solomon is kind of, and I was thinking about this this year. um, Song of Solomon is kind of the flip side of that, of the early chapters in Proverbs that deal with adultery. Um, So remember there, the, one of the ending portions of that chapter, because most of the chapter is about don't go off with an adulteress. Mm -hmm. Don't listen to an adulteress. Like, don't be tempted away. Um, but the line, one of the lines I loved in Proverbs was delight yourself in the wife of your youth. So it was kind of the flip side of the coin of not yeah. just saying, don't do this. Here is the positive thing that you do. Um, and so I, I feel like Song of Solomon is almost like you could have the, uh, the prologue be delight yourself in the wife of your youth. Here's how. And then Song of yep. Solomon is basically just a, it's a, um, it is absolutely a celebration of 
erotic love within the context of marriage and and the joy that that sex is and the way that God created it. That's very much what is going on in Song of Solomon. Um, be, and like you said, because of that, <laughs> the uh, kids weren't allowed to read it for for uh, for a long time. For, and, in that respect, obvious reasons. Yeah, there, there you go. Um, and then we'll just kind of dive into it here. Uh, the song begins with the woman declaring her love for her betrothed. Um, and we're also introduced, I, I, this is really interesting to me. It's a feature unique to Song of Solomon, which is the chorus. And so you'll see that there's three there's three characters. And this is, it almost reads like a musical, like a, like a short play. So there's, and you'll note in most Bible translations, it'll say she, him, and others, right? And so she is obviously the bride. He is obviously... Solomon or the groom, if you, if you don't think it's Solomon. And then the others are kind of a, uh, it's, it's like literally like a group. Like if you're watching a play, it's just the choir in the background that are singing along. Right. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. I love that. I love the uniqueness of the, this book and the way that it's laid out. It's unique in both theme and subject matter and in the way that it's written. <laughs> Look at that. Uh, so the whole book starts off with just I love this guy so much. And so it's, she says, uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And then the, uh, the chorus says, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And then she says, I am dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? So we're introduced to the woman here. Uh, this is a bit, this is a key character component. And again, this is where you have to kind of take off your modern glasses put on the new ones. Um, one of the things that this woman is self-conscious about is that she's more tan than, than normal women, which is kind of funny to us. Cause like, it's kind of like the we opposite. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of the opposite in our culture <laughs> where like everyone goes out and they go tanning. Um, but what back in this culture, right. The more tan your skin was, the more poor you probably were because it meant that you were outside working. Yep. You weren't inside. It means you didn't yep. have servants to go do those things. And so that's one of the things that she's talking about there. Yeah. And it's just like being skinny was not revered very oh, highly yeah. either. Like culturally, we've flipped everything. But yeah, it's darker skin is not good because it means you're more of a worker and servant. Yeah, I like to uh, <clears throat> I like to use some of the compliments just to like make my wife laugh or more accurately just make my wife roll her eyes. But some of them are like, it's straight up just being like, no, no, like you're way heavier than you think you are. Don't worry about it because Solomon's trying to make her feel better. And it's like, some of these like really don't translate to today, but nope, it's kind of funny how it works. So don't say some of these to your wife sincerely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So cultures, cultures change, man. Uh, so the song continues with the man and the woman talking about how much they love the other person. Uh, and like I said, this is a great opportunity. Take off your modern Western glasses and try and put on these ancient glasses. The metaphors are going to be strange to our ears for sure. Um, and I wrote down just a couple examples. She compares, or sorry, he compares her to a mare of Pharaoh's chariots. You're like a horse, babe. Yeah. <laughs> Which again, it's but like the what, best horse. What he's saying. Yeah. Basically he's like, and the horse is like pretty, re even today, I feel like this is still true. It's pretty recognized as like one of the most beautiful animals. Mm -hmm. Like it's like, oh, that's a majestic horse. And so he's saying like, the most majestic horse in the most expensive group of horses, which would be, of course, the pharaohs. The, the king of Egypt is still 
the most powerful person in the world at this point, or at least in the this region. Um, he compares her eyes to doves. Ooh. So, you know, and we still have doves. Those are, you know, sometimes I, sure. I pass a sign every time we go to Red Robin for a dove company that they do, they do dove releases. So, you know, we can, if we want, if Aaron, if you want to do a dove release with me, we can just hire nope, it out and we can, it'll be awesome. Uh, she compares him to a stag. Ooh. So like a, like a young buck, which I guess that's kind of, that's made it into modern parlance a little bit, not in the romantic sense, but it's kind of something that. A and, stud would be a way that we would use that today. Yeah, there you go. You're a stud. Uh, and she mentions that their couch is green, which is just kind of saying that they like being outside, I think, but it's kind of an interesting, again, that can be interpreted in multiple ways, but that's kind of the way I've, I've seen it. And I think I agree with like basically saying like when we relax and when we're out, we're, we're in the pastures, we're with the sheep or, you know, we're with all these different things. So look at our abundance. And again, I really hope this is Solomon's first one. So anyway, <laughs> there you go. Uh, and then we also get this pair of compliments. I think these are, I think these are really cool. Uh, so she, or he says as a lily among the brambles, so is my love among the young woman. And then she says as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men with great delight i sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste um i think it just kind of just gets at like the natural differences of men and women here and, I, like, and i'm not convinced that's a euphemism by the way like i'm not convinced that that's like a uh the, yeah right 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 it's it's just referring to the light that comes from an apple tree in the midst of a forest so um i just know in modern day there's a lot of things that are manipulated and 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 created to be euphemisms that are inappropriate but that's not what that means necessarily so. sure um but, yeah, but I, it could i guess within the whole theme of the book there's well yeah not, there's that's there's, not the inference there especially once we get to post-wedding there's some where it's like they're talking about just eating fruit and it's like I'm, we know, come on we know what you're talking yep. about right now um but anyway so i love that he says like it's basically like seeing a single flower amongst the thorns amongst yep. the brambles um so he's he's comparing his bride or his future bride to something beautiful in the midst of everything that's drab around it. Um, and I thought that the, the metaphor of the apple tree among the trees of the forest is interesting because basically it's like among all of these tall, strong things, you are, the, you are the one that like provides, you are the one that is actually like useful and things like that. So it's kind of just like the way they yeah. complement each other is kind of interesting there. Uh, the rest of chapter two is taken over by the bride raving about how much she loves her soon-to-be husband, including the line, which is without a doubt my favorite, and said a few times, uh, my beloved is mine and I am his. Um, I, I don't think the whole book is a is, is meant to be taken as a for sure, this is a metaphor of Yahweh's love for his people, but that is definitely an idea, right? The idea that... Um, and this isn't this is an idea all throughout scripture that marriage is a shadow of our relationship with God. It's a it's a small mm. reminder of what our relationship with God is. And so the idea that she says, I am my beloved's and he is mine, there's this idea of mutual belonging to each other um, that exists in the covenant of marriage. And of course, that is to remind us of the fact that there is the covenant that we have with God, where he is our God and, and we are his people, right? And so it, it reminds me of, like I've said a million times, I love Revelation 21. I think it's like one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. Um, so it looks forward to that, but it also looks backwards to the way that God has talked to his people, Israel, because he tells them like, you are my people and I am your God. Uh, in the middle of chapter three, we get a short dream sequence where she's wandering around Jerusalem looking for her beloved and she can't find him. Uh, luckily she does though. So, and they, and they hug. So just like a little nightmare, but it ends on a good note where she finds him and they hug. Uh, and again, you can interpret this different ways. Maybe that did happen, but it's the way it's kind of structured seems like it's just out of nowhere and then it <laughs> jumps right back into other stuff. So it seems like it was like a dream that she had. 
the end of chapter three begins the wedding. So the groom Ooh. arrives, and here's the deal, guys. The groom arrives in all sorts of pomp and circumstance. Um, if the groom is not Solomon, he at least very much has the king's favor. Like he is someone who knows Solomon because he arrives uh, with 60 of the mighty men of Israel and then a carriage made by the order of Solomon. Ooh. So, um, or Weird if, flex, but okay. Yeah. I mean, basically he's, he's arriving, like he's either the king or he is someone who is bros with the king and is all about like, like the king is like, Hey, I want to make your wedding day super awesome. Um, or I guess you could interpret it as she's poetically describing him just coming up with his friends and she's kind of projecting onto him this image of like seeing the king arise. So maybe that's what's going on if here. If that's not true for modern day marriages, I don't know what is. There you go. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so after the groom arrives, he showers his bride with poetic compliments. And again, you're going to have to put on your ancient Israelite glasses for this one. His song ends with inviting the north and south winds to blow and bless the garden of their love, which again is just another, it's just like all the metaphors are kind of funny. Um, the thing I want to remind here is when you read in the Bible, there's going to talk about winds. Um, the north, south, and even the west wind to a certain extent were, they carried nutrients with them for the most part. So like when you had the wind blowing from those directions, farmers would be like, oh, this is awesome. Uh, the east wind was all desert. So the east wind is the wind that you don't like. So if you see something being compared to the east wind um, or uh, or just it being referenced, then that means it's something harmful or it's something bad. worthless. Whereas the north and south winds are like, ah, yes, bring these winds and like uh, bring basically the fertile nutrients for our marriage, for our, for our love there. Uh, and then we'll just read this little passage here. She says, let my beloved... Come to it, come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. He says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. The sister thing is weird. That happens. So they call each other brother and sister sometimes. That's not a literal thing. It's yeah. just an ancient Mesopotamian term of endearment yep. is basically meaning. It's a cultural thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of putting on your ancient Israelite glasses for that one. Uh, but he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then the chorus says, eat friends, drink. Drink and be drunk with love. Um, that is almost assuredly a poetic description of them consummating their marriage, right? That's what's happening there. So probably, again, oh. there's a bunch of, you can interpret things a bunch of different ways, but I think that's what's happening in that moment. So now they're married. Yay. Uh, we then get a, what seems like a bit of a time jump in the rest of chapter five. Um, okay. So people go back and forth on to whether this is a dream. I could really go both ways. <laughs> so there's, there's one thing that seems like this is nuts if it's not a dream. Um, but then the way they kind of describe at the end, it seems like it's a real thing that happened, or maybe she's having this nightmare and then she wakes up. Anyway, we'll get, we'll get into it a little bit here. So, um, the bride wakes up to the knocking of her husband. So he's been home, he's coming home late. Uh, for some reason she delays going to the door to let him in. And then when she finally opens the door, she finds that he has left. Um, and she frantically searches around the city until the watchmen find her and they, and they beat her. So this is the part where it's like. She's the queen, or I guess she's not necessarily the queen. So maybe this is like, if you're interpreting them as a random couple in Israel, maybe this actually does make more sense. So I'm, I'm coming at this from the Solomon angle. Um, but I, it, I find it very hard to believe that the guards are like, hey, there's the queen of Israel. And then they just start like punching her. Like, that seems like, I don't know, man, that, that, that seems like a stretch or they'd be in a lot of trouble. Um, so again, like this could be a thing that literally happened if you don't think that it's Solomon's bride, or you can think it's Solomon's bride and those guards are just in a heap of trouble. Like when Solomon gets back and we just don't find out about it. Um, and then this could also be that she 
the, the knocking at the door happens in real life. She goes to sleep and then she dreams that she goes and opens the door and she can't find him. And then she gets beaten up and that wakes her up. And then she goes out to actually try and find him. There's a few different ways you could do it. Um, it's, it's hard to figure out exactly what's going on. If she's trying to be playful with not opening the door and then she just kind of like goes too far and then he leaves um, and like upsets him. Or if she's like mad at him for being mm-hmm. home late and then she purposely doesn't open the door and then she kind of like come like uh, forgives him a little bit later and then she he opens the door and gone. You can kind of go both ways with it. Either way, it seems like he's left in a fence. Like it, it's not a, it's not a good thing that she didn't yeah. let him into the house, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and then I love after, after she says that she's been beaten by the card, the cards, the guards, uh, the chorus asks, Hey, what's so great about, what's so great about your husband? And she goes on describing why she loves him. Uh, and eventually she finds him in the garden where they continue to praise each other. Um, the section ends with them having sex and just kind of delighting in the love that they have for each other. Uh, chapter eight brings us to the end of the song where the bride describes her longings for her husbands. And there, and there's the famous line, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for your love is as strong as death and jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So basically just talking about... um, the, the jealousy of love. And, and again, like just because we don't think that this is supposed to be an exact allegory of God's love for his people, that doesn't mean there's not things we can draw out of it as uh, like, this is clearly like God describes himself as a jealous God. He is jealous for the love um, of his people, just not in the same way, but in a similar way to the way that a spouse should be jealous for the love of their spouse. Like, it, it, and sometimes it gets, yeah, that gets, uh, <laughs> That gets said like a bad thing, like jealousy is just inherently bad. Like, no, like if you're a spouse, you have a right to uh, like want the love of your spouse. Like you shouldn't want that to be going like, yeah. like at least the um, true. the eros love of your spouse to be going in other places. Um, and then finally, the final section of the chapter is a reminder um, from all three characters to guard yourself until it's time. And that's what you kind of reference at the start when he says, do not awaken love before it's time. It's talking about just the virtues of um, God created. And I'm, I guess I told our listeners 20 minutes, so I'll, I'll start using more vague language now because we're at 21. But uh, God created marital intimacy to be enjoyed within marriage, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's saying there, there's a, it's a wonderful gift. And the book makes very clear that this is a wonderful thing that they both enjoy, um, but it is to be enjoyed within the confines that God has given it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a good reminder about the joys of erotic love that is meant to be enjoyed within the parameters that God has laid out. I don't know if you had any closing thoughts on the Song of Solomon before we move on. No, I think, I mean, I think you'll find that phrase is repetitive multiple times throughout the book of Song of Solomon is the idea of not awakening or arousing love. And part of it is because you see this overwhelming uh, picture of the bride's desire for her husband. Um, and and if, if that's not true for, for us today, like we become infatuated when we, and so it's, it's this tension of when it's time, how do we, you know, how do we discern the timing and things like that? I think it's important. It's a great reminder. Um, and just, again, the, the beauty of marriage and between a husband and a wife and, um, to enjoy what God intended. And so right. I think those are all big things and uh, just being guarded, I think is a good way to end it too. So. All right. Well, let's jump back into Kings just for a little bit, just for a, just for a moment, just a quick little pit stop. And then we'll go back into some, uh, I guess not, well, some poetry. Ecclesiastes has some poetry in it. Uh, so here's the deal. Listener, if you've been listening to us talk about Solomon and you're like, I don't get, where's this bad stuff 
going to happen because he seems pretty great right now. Here it is. So, <laughs> so we get into First Kings chapter 11. Um, and it, oh my gosh, it's just a bummer. So we see that Solomon in his old age, and I, I guess to give him credit, and I don't know why, but in my mind's head going into this year, I had Solomon's fall kind of being early. Yeah. And it seems like, no, it's pretty late in his reign that this is happening. So that might influence where we rank him. We'll see. Um, but he begins to worship other gods and leading Israel uh, with him to worship other gods, including Molech, who, uh, you know, just the worst. We're not told explicitly that he sacrifices children here. So maybe like this is kind of the that start. That might save him in the ranking. Oh my God. Yeah. If, it, if there was a phrase about, here's the deal, listener, Molech is an ancient Mesopotamian god. But he's associated with child sacrifice. And so a lot of the times when you're seeing it in, uh, when you're reading through Kings, sometimes they'll talk about, they worship these different gods and then they'll add on and Molech as kind of like a, as a, uh, it's kind of like, and when you talk about the good Kings, there's the Kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then there's the Kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, like their father, David is kind of like an extra little oomph. Uh, yeah. for the bad Kings, the, and Molech is kind of the extra oomph in the bad direction. He's, he's not good. Um, we're also told, and again, speaking of numbers I had wrong, he has over 700 wives and 300 concubines. I've been saying 600. I, 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 shorted, oh, really? I shorted him a century I of never, wives. I never missed that. Oh, man. Or I never picked up on that. So that's, that's my bad, listeners. I, I, I Well, technically, you said over 600, which is still kind of 700 that's true. over 600. Yeah. So you're still kind of safe. Though. It's over 600 wives is correct in the same way that over one wife is correct. But hey, there you go. 100%. Um, so, yeah. And then that many of them worshiped other gods. So, and this is, we see like he, he starts to build houses and he starts to build places for them to all worship. And yeah, Solomon, but, again, he's making political alliances, which is really smart in a history book. Like it's really smart when you're running a kingdom in that way. But the way you do that typically is by marrying another, a woman from the other tribe, right. for the other country. And, and the, the big thing is it's not like, cause there's not necessarily laws in Israel about, um, you can't marry foreign women, but it's, they have to become Israelites and worship the Lord. It can't be that like, yeah, and, you know, keep, and keep your gods. Yeah. Um, and Solomon does not hold to that. He's yeah. he is not he, he's very much like, yeah, just come over here and keep worshiping whoever you want to worship. I think the biggest bummer of this section is you come from Song of Solomon, where I would be in the camp that is Solomon and his bride, uh, where you come from Solomon celebrating like love with his bride. And then right when it finishes, you jump into the section, a very small section that says, oh, by the way, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's great. And so, like, if, great. if you really want to bum yourself out thinking about Song of Solomon, like what if it's wife 700 that, oh, this, geez. that this song is about? It's just like, no. Anyway. 700 time is the charm. All right. So God sees all this happening, obviously, because he's God and he sees everything. So he talks to Solomon. This is in uh, verses 11 through 13 of chapter 11. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So there you go. God is basically, he's telling him what's going to happen when his idiot son takes over. And to be clear, I mean, Solomon's idiot son, the son of God is uh, awesome and the savior of the world. And his name is Jesus. So there Amen. you go. All right. So we uh, continue on here. We're then told that... Um, there's a bunch of enemies that Yahweh raises up against Solomon. Uh, most of them are foreign enemies. The, the significant one is Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who is a man of Ephraim. So he is an Israelite. He, he is the one enemy that's listed that's not like kind of the king or a ruler of, a, of another nation. Uh, he is an able servant of the king. 
But then one day he runs into the prophet Ahijah, and Ahijah tells him that God has chosen him to be king over the northern ten tribes of Israel. Um, he does this by, it's kind of funny, but it's a very prophet thing to do, where he just like takes a coat and he rips it into 12 so pieces. And Drama. Then he, and then he gives him 10, and he's like, this is what the Lord is giving you. And then he could, and then, you know, Jeroboam's like, you could have just... Yeah, you know, he could have told, just told me. me. I don't know why we had to rip up this jacket, but okay. Um, and then God makes the same promise to Jeroboam that he made to Solomon, which is that if, and he makes this to a lot of the kings, if you follow in my statutes, I will establish your house. And he actually tells him, just like your father, just like David. So um, he, he's giving him the exact same deal. He's like, hey, listen, if you follow me and you keep my statutes, I'll build a dynasty, just like the Davidic dynasty. And people will remember, like people will call about the, they'll talk about the Jeroboam dynasty of the Northern tribes. Uh, spoiler alert, he does not. What? Follow, he does not follow all of the statutes, but uh, we'll see how that works out for him here in a little bit. In, my, in a little bit, I mean, when uh, Aaron starts talking, because I'm going back into Ecclesiastes, but not before we read a little bit of Chronicles. Uh, the Chronicles passage is the same. <laughs> so... There you go. That's it. Uh, no, like, there's one difference. Uh, the the ending portion talks about Solomon's life, and it gives us uh, way more sources that we're missing today. I always get bummed out when it's like, because here's at the end of every king, it talks about, and for the rest of what happened, you know, we have these books, and I just want to be like, no, we don't, not anymore. You're a liar. Come on. So it's uh, now the rest of the Acts of Solomon from first to last. Are they not written? In the history of Nathan the prophet, and in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shiahite, and in the visions of Ido, and the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Like, well, you know, maybe they are, but it would be nice if we had them. Prove uh, it. And th- what's interesting is Chronicles is post-exilic. So the, that means that these sources are, they were around like at this time. So they yeah. were lost fairly, I, I shouldn't say fairly, well, I guess relatively recently. And by relatively recently, I mean over 2000 years ago, but in the grand scheme of things, it's it's closer than when we, we would have, like it would be lost around the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I guess, is what you could say. Uh, and then Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all 40 years and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father and Rehoboam, his son reigned in his place. Oh, fun. Um, but after Solomon dies, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm just kidding. But we're reading chronologically. I, I thought it was funny. Like, why didn't they just put the... Because they yeah. did a few things. Like, why not just put that sentence at the end of Ecclesiastes and yeah. then Solomon died? Because, they've, yeah, they've messed with the reading plan pretty significantly as yeah. far as... But anyways. But, you know, hey, who are we to judge? Because we didn't put together the chronological plan. And it's, it's okay. A I'll submit one. a review on the reading plan. Like, <laughs> one, st- one star. I don't know why. That, that's my That's my <laughs> negative... <laughs> review voice. Uh, All right. So let's get into Ecclesiastes. No time to mourn for Solomon just yet. We are jumping into what is probably his final work. Uh, And when I say probably, I don't mean if it's it's written by Solomon, it is for sure his last work. Like this is for sure written after Song of Solomon and Proverbs. Uh, When I say probably, you know, it's technically anonymous. Um, Most church tradition and, and Jewish tradition attributes it to Solomon. But there's, you, it could be another king. It's, it's almost certainly a king of Israel because yeah. it says the opening, the opening line is uh, the son of David. Um, and so you, yeah, the son of David it definitely is very, wasn't written by Rehoboam. That is accurate. Definitely wasn't written by Absalom. Yeah. The, the Song of Solomon, like I said, it could take, you could, it would just take a little tiny shove to get me to think that it's not necessarily about Solomon. This one would take a more, you know, you'd have to really get your weight behind it yeah, to shove Office me, linebacker. Yeah. The, to get me out of the camp that this is written by Solomon. Um, Ecclesiastes is a seemingly nihilistic work. Uh, and by nihilistic, I just mean, it just talks about the meaninglessness of life. Yep. Um, when I was a kid, I talked about how it was my, um, so I got, I got, you know, when I was like 15 is kind of when 
my faith really became my own and it stopped being my parents' faith. So I started like kind of going into the Bible and I was just struck by like opening up my Bible. And I think it must've been NIV because the ESV translates it as vanity. Um, but just the opening lines of like meaningless, meaningless. meaningless. Yep. I was like, tell me more. This is interesting. It's like, why is this in here? And so I like read through it and I was like, wow, this is really dark and and, and cool. Uh, maybe I was a teenager. So I just thought it was like super cool. No, you still think it's cool. So. I do. Yeah, that's true. I do still love Ecclesiastes. This is probably one of the most depressing books in the Bible. And, and, and this is one where, it, again, there's wide ranges of how to interpret it. And I think it's very important to, I think what is happening here is Solomon has reached the end of his life and he's reflecting on the fact that he has drifted away from his relationship with Yahweh. And he is reflecting on how meaningless that life has been. And when I say that life, I mean specifically living materialistically. Um, and when I say, sorry, when I say materialistically, I mean without the idea of relationship with God in mind. I think that's what's being reflected on here. I don't think the idea is that um, not everything in Ecclesiastes is meant to be taken as 100% true. I think it's meant to be taken as if there is no God, this is true. But the the existence of God changes the uh, the calculus on many yeah. of the things. That's yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think he's at the end of his life. He's reflecting on his life. But I, I do think there are some literal realities to it where he has seen, he's pursued these things and they've left him to say a vanity of vanities or meaningless, meaningless. Um, but as, as I read through it, you, I can't help but get the sense of grief and sorrow and that reflection, uh, regret, maybe that's a better word to use. Um, so that's why when I say it's more probably one of the most depressing books of the Bible is because it is that tension of the wisest man who ever lived, arguably, like, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. has, has this moment of like, I missed it. Um, so I think that's why it's, it's, it's depressing. So yeah. anyways, well, yeah. it's really good because I think it's good to, to re- reflect back on the fact that he's the wisest man that ever lived and he's saying, Hey, all of these things, I, I didn't withhold anything for myself, not to get too far ahead. Mm-hmm. But it's all like meaningless, meaningless is like a repetitive th- theme, vanity of vanities. Um, so anyways, that it's just, it's an incredible book to read. And I think it's really important to read today. Um, but it's, it's, as I reflect on Solomon, who was the wisest king, um, it's a, like, it, it's sad. It's depressing. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, like we kind of talked about, the book begins with the famous refrain, uh, vanity of vanities, all is vanity or meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Um, I, I, this kind of stood out to me. It reminds me a little bit of C.S. Lewis, where talking about the idea of like, we were created for something else, like we're immortals living in a mortal world. Um, and so obviously like it's clouded by that. I don't think this is exactly what he's getting at here, but in verses eight through nine, that's just what I can't, I can't help think of that where it says all yeah. things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. So basically just the cyclical nature uh, and just kind of feeling like there's, there's gotta be something else besides this. Um, as the book continues, we see very specific vanities that are observed by the preacher. Um, and I'll, sorry, I'll, I'm going to refer to the author as the preacher because that's how he describes himself. Again, I, I think it's Solomon, but I, in, in cases where it's like kind of up in the air, I like to just kind of, you know, put put out what the what the actual title of the uh, the author is in this. So uh, the preacher talks about the vanity of wisdom 
And the more wisdom that <coughs> Solomon gained, the more frustrated and sorrowful he was over the state of the world, uh, which is an interesting way of saying it. Basically, he's saying like the more and more I, because what is, what is wisdom, right? Is It is fearing the Lord, is understanding the law of the Lord. And so he's like, the more and more I understood that, the more and more... Um, sorrowful he became over how the world was not like the way that it should be. Um, He talks about the vanity of self-indulgence. So Solomon tries to cope with sorrow through just outright hedonism. And by hedonism, I mean just basically anything that gives you, the idea of it today is whatever gives you pleasure, go do it, do it to the max. That is the highest, um, that is the highest good is pursuing your own pleasure. Uh, Solomon does that and he founds he finds this meaningless. Basically he says like, I got everything. Like I, whatever I wanted, it was there. He doesn't say this specifically, but you can kind of put like, I have 700 wives and 300 concubines. Like that's anything. I, that's all I could ever need in that department. I have massive palaces that mm-hmm. are just like the finest in the world. Um, all of the nations of the world respect and, and honor me. I have all of these things. I have all these pleasures. I eat the finest food. I drink the best wine and it's, it's meaningless. Um, he talks about, and this is this, some of these are are interesting to read. The vanity of living wisely, and so he Solomon's realized that, uh, you know, I'm going to die one day, no matter what. Like, what's the point of having all this wisdom? Which is again, kind of a nihil, it's a nihilistic thought, and you kind of show it's it's almost like a uh, it's a man who's in his head a little bit too much. Is kind of the way I read some of this some of these things, that the uh, the wisdom that he's given is in some ways a hindrance to him just because of how much he. Um, and you see this with, uh, and I, I want to be careful because I don't want to equate wisdom with intelligence. And I think sometimes we can do that. Um, but you see that with like, there's uh, a lot of times there's higher rates of depression, the the more intelligence that you have. Um, and, I, and I'm wondering if that's a little bit of what's going on here as well. Uh, the vanity of toil or of work. Um, Solomon talks about how after he's done, he has to leave it to whoever's next. And that guy could be a moron. And again, I always joke that I just- This imagine- is a funny one to read. I'll, yeah. I'll be honest. I laughed when I read it again. I was I, like, oh, that's right. I always imagine Solomon writing this, pausing, looking over at Rehoboam and Rehoboam just doing something stupid. And he's like, oh my gosh, my idiot, my idiot kid's going to be king. And this keeps going. So <laughs> who knows? Uh, chapter three gives us the famous poem about there being a time for everything under heaven. Uh, it's a reminder that life is going to have moments of happiness and sorrow and to not let that rob us of our joy. Um, and so basically, and then this is a good, it's a, there's a song called turn, 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 which is like, it's, it's this, um, it's this song put, to, it's this passage of scripture put to music. So it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's famous for that because it's just straight up Ecclesiastes. Um, but you know, it, it's a, if you've heard it, you've, you've probably, if you know a passage from Ecclesiastes, this is the, probably the one you've heard where it's uh, yeah. a time to sow and a time to plant, a time to uh, uh, mourn and a time to, a t- and a time for happiness. I, I'm, I'm butchering because I didn't write down the actual passage here. Um, but again, it's a reminder that we should not expect life to be all good we should not expect life to be all bad. Life is going to have both. And I, and I, sorry, I intentionally do not want to use the words good and bad. Um, life is not going to be all pleasure and life is not going to be all pain. Um, because I think sometimes we, we use those words good and bad flippantly mm-hmm. where we, cause not all, not all things that bring us pleasure are good, good. Yeah. and not all things that bring us pain are bad. Um, there is suffering that God uses for good um, that is for our that is for our good for our growth, and so I want to make sure we we don't equate. It is painful, but I want to make sure we don't say that it's it's necessarily a bad thing. Um, as the chapter continues, the preacher laments that God has written eternity on man's heart, yet he cannot discover everything about God. So again, this 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 screams to me someone who's in his own head, where um, 
God has written the desire in our heart to know more about what's next, to have eternity. But because we live in a fallen world, we don't get to know everything about God in our, and we kind of, we long for something that we can't get. In chapter four, we begin a section of the preacher pointing out evils under the sun. Uh, and you'll see under heaven and under the sun are kind of two different phrases that are used in Ecclesiastes a lot. Under the sun is often interpreted as meaning um, without God, which I kind of I kind of agree with when he's talking about just the idea of um, the broken, or another way you could say is under the sun means the broken world that we live in. Uh, and so he sees the brokenness of the world and he laments that is not the way that God would have it be. In chapter five, we get a brief section of advice to fear God and to not be flippant when making vows or following his commands. This is good advice uh, that Solomon, I bet, wishes he would have heeded uh, uh, later in his life. <laughs> After that, we jump back into find, finding uh, vanities. Uh, this time, the preacher points out the vanity in having wealth and honor. So the man who loves money will never have enough, uh, and a man who can toil for honor only to have a stranger enjoy it all. Uh, in that passage, this is the idea of like, is in the line is whoever loves money will never have money enough. I always think of, and you could equate it to fame or whatever else. Um there's a there's a line I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but I believe it was Jim Carrey who said, "I wish everyone could be rich and famous so they'd realize it doesn't fix anything." And I think that's kind of like what Solomon is getting at, where it's just, "Look, if you think money's going to fix it, I have more money than you could ever know what to do with," and it it did it did not. Um, chapter seven contrasts wisdom with folly, and honestly, I was I was going to say part of these next few chapters feel like they could have just been ripped right out of Proverbs or slapped on the back of it. Uh, but to give you kind of an idea. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Um, And I always think of uh, one of the... um, a former former pastor here, he moved down to Arizona, but John Rich always used to use this for um, <coughs> memorials when he would do them. And this is like one of the passages he would go. And it's just kind of this idea that um, the wise person thinks about the end. Mm-hmm. He, they, they live their lives in light of the ending and having that in mind. And there was another, uh, there was a, uh, uh, a soccer player named Steve Zakwani who spoke at men's conference. This is a few years ago now, but one of the things he talked about is just the idea of like one of his mentors told him, the goal of your life is to die empty. Like it's to, if you're, if you're a fruit tree, the goal is to not leave any fruit on the vine. It's to give it all away, um, to get to the end and then think about basically the ending of your life. And if you live your life with the ending in mind, of course, that is going to be a much more wise thing than just kind of going for it. And so when it says the heart of the wise man is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth, it's saying the wise man is thinking about those things, even from an, from an early age. Uh, Chapter nine, Reminds us that death is coming for us all. So cheer- cheerful. <laughs> Reminds me of a Super Mario movie. The star in the cage. The only escape is the sweet release of death. Um, first off, he's a Luma, not a star. Come on. Uh, it is followed by a uh, My bad. a reminder that we should enjoy life uh, with the wife who we love. So I, it's interesting that that's a piece of advice in Proverbs. It's a piece of advice in Song of Solomon. And, and then celebrated, so, yep. Yeah, and celebrated Song of Solomon. And then it's a piece of life in Ecclesiastes as, as well. Uh, it's, it's almost like Solomon is trying to say, um, hey, just enjoy 
life with your wife. Like, don't keep searching for other things. And I like to think, obviously, this is reading into it. I like to think he's regretting having 700 wives and 300 concubines. I like to think maybe he's like, you know, really should. And maybe I won't give him too much credit. Maybe he's thinking, I should have been satisfied with 10. You know, no one needs, <laughs> maybe, what did David have? Seven? I think it might have been more by the six, end of it. Wasn't was it, it six? Anyway, oh, Solomon. Uh, and in the final section I'm talking about, Aaron will actually wrap up Ecclesiastes here in a little bit. Yay. But it's a, uh, it's a, it, it kicks off with a reminder that wisdom is better than folly. And then there's just a bunch of proverbs. So I just kind of highlighted a few that I thought were, that kind of stood out to me. Uh, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So basically it's like, yeah, if, uh, if you give someone a nice perfume, but there's a dead bug inside of it. It's going to make the whole thing smell bad. Just like if you live your life mostly wise, but you are really foolish in a couple things, it's going to ruin the whole rest of the thing as well. Uh, verse three is even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Um, the second part of that stands out to me where it's like, it, it is very true. Like, like when I'm being foolish, am I like being self-reflective? No, I'm probably like, you're, you're the idiot. Oh, all of you are wrong. I'm right. Like that sort of thing. And, but I also love the picture of uh, even when the fool is on the road, he's lost. <laughs> like, it's just kind of talking about like, like you're on the path. Like you just, just follow the path. Just keep walking. Oh, where man. is it? Uh, it, verse 10 is if the iron is blunt, one does not sharpen the edge. He must use more strength, but wisdom helps one succeed. So it's like, there's, I think it's Abraham Lincoln where there's the old like folk tale that he bet someone that he could chop. I forgot what it was, but it was chop something down faster. And he spent the first half sharpening his ax and then went for it. And then he won. Right. So I don't know if that happened or not, but it kind of reminds me of that. And then finally, the last one I'll read is, and this one I just always, we talked about last year, I think too. I just think it's interesting because it's a dead metaphor where mm. we have no idea what it means, what? but yeah. it's yeah, cast your bread upon the waters and you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. So what it's getting at is essentially freely give your resources to others. Um, and then it'll come back to you as well. Like be, be generous because there might be a time when you need people to be generous with you. Uh, reminds me of the end of one of the greatest films of all time, which is of course, it's a wonderful life when George Bailey spends his whole life giving to others. And then when he's in his hour of need, everyone rushes because they want to make sure that he's taken care of as well. Um, but yeah, the cast your bread upon the waters and it will be, you'll find it after many days. That's kind of like, I don't know, maybe it's talking about if you throw it in the, like the currents will bring it back to the shore. So, but then you're not going to want to eat that bread. Bread's kind of soggy and it's gross and all salty. So I don't who, know. Who wants that kind of bread? But I, I, dead, dead metaphors are just kind of fascinating to me because it's like, again, like I, I, I really try to try and try to try. <laughs> I really try That's to put sentence. on, yeah, I really try to put on uh, the Israelite glasses when I'm reading the Bible. And so it's interesting when you run into spots where uh, it becomes significantly more difficult because you're just yes. like, what are you talking about right now? I don't like soggy bread. I know. Who does? Well, bread pudding's really good. Well, All right. Well, soggy bread. So, so listeners, we're going to uh, continue on with Ecclesiastes here in a little bit. But before we do, uh, we do want to take a moment to say like, hey, if you haven't left us a five-star review yet, please go ahead and do that. Uh, you can leave those reviews on whatever app you're listening on, particularly on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Those are the ones that really help us out. Uh, Spotify, we're closing in on 200 ratings. That's so pretty, fun. That's exciting. Um, and then on Apple Podcasts, you can actually leave a written review. And if you leave a written review, we'll read it on the air just because, you know, that's the kind of guys we are. We just want to, we want to give our listeners, our beloved listeners, 
listeners a shout out. Uh, but so does that mean that those who leave a written review are the beloved listeners? And I those think, who don't are not? No, here's the deal. Oh, listen, listener, <laughs> if you're listening right now, you're a beloved listener. The rest of the listeners are just, you know, they're just scrub listeners. They're whatever. We don't care about those listeners. But you. You think you're so clever. You listening right now. He's right. been reading too much of Solomon, uh, which makes him think he's wiser than he is. Uh, and that's just reality. I am my beloved. My beloved is mine. <laughs> we are your podcast and you are our beloved <laughs> listeners. That's how it works. Uh, I love it. Uh, and yes, so we're wrapping up Ecclesiastes. It's been it's been a gauntlet of a lot of wisdom, a lot of poetry. Um, but we'll find uh, here in, in really the, the bulk of the last two chapters uh, that Solomon wraps up his thoughts. Um, and he begins re- by reviewing the essentials uh, about how we should spend our time that we have. And essentially, it's twofold. One, enjoy the days you have. And two, fear God. That That's kind of what happens here in, in chapters. It's good advice. 11 verse 7, uh, all the way to 12 verse 7. Then we see in 12 verse 8 that Solomon is repeating the theme of the book stated in uh, 1 verses 2. Uh, and I didn't write that down. So you'll read it and you'll that, you'll realize that's the repeating theme because uh, I totally forgot to write it down. Oh my gosh. Uh, don't judge me. Uh, but it says this, I'm going to read, um, read all of this and then go from there. Uh, but the last section before I read them is, uh, you'll see 12 verses 9 to 14 are just a few insights into Solomon's life, which we don't really get apart from his reflections. Uh, and so it just kind of gives a little bit more insight. And then he gives some parting ex- or exhortations. So I figured since we're wrapping up the book of Ecclesiastes in typical Evan fashion, it's worth reading together. Um, Good man. And Good you're man. welcome for that. So it says this, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 7 to 10, it says, Light is sweet and it is pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if someone lives many years, let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness since there will be many. All that comes is futile. Uh, Rejoice, young person, while you are young and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth and walk in the ways of your heart and in, in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Uh, so he's just saying it's it's good to walk in the days of your youth to enjoy the life you've been given, um, pursue the things that your heart desires, but understand what you pursue, God brings judgment to you. In essence, he's saying, make sure you choose wisely. Um, verse 10, he says, remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. Uh, and so he really is trying to encourage his listenership to embrace the youth because it's the most, it's the, it's the prime time of life. And so make sure you're grabbing and living uh, in that capacity. Speaking of uh, it's a wonderful life. It reminds me of the scene where the guy is looking up from the window and he's like, kiss the girl. And they're like waiting. He's like, ah, youth is wasted on the young. Like it's Solomon energy right there. So true. Uh, And real quick, if you hear like, I'm a little nasally today, I went, I got a cold this last weekend. And so I'm kind of on the backstage of it. So if you hear a little bit of coughing in the background, I apologize. Way to push through. Um, So I'm not nearly as sick as I used to be. It's funny. I feel like I've been sick more this year with the podcast than I have in years past. Um, But continuing on to the end of Ecclesiastes here, verses uh, chapter 12, verses one through seven. Uh, it says, so remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of adversity come and the years of approach, when you will when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light are darkened and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain. On the day when the guardians of the house tremble, the strong men stoop, the women who grind grain cease because they are few and the ones who watch through the window see dimly. The doors of the sh- at the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. When or- one arises at the sound of a bird, and all the daughter, daughters of a song grow faint. Also, they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road, and the almond tree blossoms, a grasshopper loses its spring, and the caperberry has no effect, for the mere mortal is headed to his eternal home, 
and mourners, mourners will walk around in the street. Before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken, the jar is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken into the well, and the dust returns to the earth as if it once was, and the Spirit of God returns to who gave it. Um, so he's just saying, I mean, the whole premise to this passage is remember the creators in the days of your youth because life is fleeting. I mean, we get that, again, theme throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes, um, but it is this twofold promise of enjoy your life and fear God. Uh, and then finally, re- reading 9 to 14, these are the exhortations uh, that Solomon gives. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. Oh, sorry, this is the insight into Solomon's life. Um, he weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books and many studies. Many much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this: Fear God and keep His commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including everything hidden, whether good or evil. And that's where the book of Ecclesiastes ends. And that's kind of the last hurrah of Solomon, the last reflection of Solomon's life. Uh, because then we shift this week into First Kings. We jump all the way back into First Kings, if Woo! you remember. Uh, and then we're reintroduced to Rehoboam, who's the son of Solomon. Uh, and then also reintroduced to Jeroboam, who, remember, rebelled against Solomon. Uh, and Solomon actually tried to kill, but he escaped by fleeing to Egypt. Uh, he gets called back to Israel uh, to request, uh, in essence, to Israel to use him to request uh, that the labor that was put on his people, the Jeroboam and his people, uh, he wants it to be lightened uh, by Rehoboam. Rehoboam's a new king. They're thinking with the changing of the guard, maybe there's an opportunity to not be so oppressed. Remember, Solomon started forced labor. Jeroboam was was one of the prominent individuals who rebelled against him uh, and comes back. So they just, in essence, they come before Rehoboam and said, hey, will you lighten the load that your father gave us? Um, and Rehoboam, in his wisdom, consults two sets of advisors. Smart, smart. Uh, one set of advisors was the elders who actually gave advice to Solomon, which is not a bad group of guys. Your dad's reign they're, was pretty prosperous. They're a little older, so they had, they've been around the block a time or two. Yeah. Uh, and the second guy, group of guys is the ones he grew up with. Sure. Uh, which makes sense. His I mean, bros. Uh, and he asked them both what he should do, and both of them give they both give opposite advice. The older audience, the older el- the elders, tell him. B, you can gain favor with these individuals if you lighten their load. Do that. The younger guy said, don't give them, like, make it worse. You got to flex your authority. You got to say, my pinky is the size of Solomon's waist, uh, and which means I'm stronger and bigger than he is, and I'm going to enforce even more hardship on you. Uh, and so in Rehoboam's wisdom, he uh, takes the advice. Uh, so he tells Jeroboam, Come back in three days. He seeks the advice of these two groups of people. And Rehoboam, when Jeroboam comes back, says, um, here's what I'm going to do. He takes the advice of the guys he grew up with. He ignores the advice of the elders. The Rehoboam. Elders, and Rehoboam decides to make it even more severe. So Israel, in this moment, rebels against Solomon. Uh, sorry, rebels against Rehoboam, calls Jeroboam to him. And anoints him king over Israel. And this is where we see the kingdom of God's people divided into two. You see Judah, which is the southern kingdom, uh, which seems so weird to me because Judah's like the line of David and Judah's like the where God actually lasts longer than 
the northern kingdom Israel. Right. So I always think Judah's on top. So I think northern. So in my mind, I have to make sure I clarify. Um, but Judah, which is the southern kingdom, and then you see Israel, which is the northern kingdom. Uh, and we get this simple verse in First Kings chapter 12, verse 20. It says, when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they summoned him to the assembly and made him king over Israel. And it says, no one followed the house of David except the tribe of Judah alone. And that's speaking geographically, to be yes, clear. Yes, correct. Sorry. There are, there are Levites in Judah still. Yes. And the reason why Levites are in Judah is because Jeroboam sets up his own way of doing things. Well, spoilers. We'll get to there. Um, so we have this moment. The kingdom is now split. Um, and we read in Second Chronicles, which is a very similar account to First Kings and what we just read. Uh, and then we get, again, this is where we're jumping back and forth. If you felt like you were reading the Bible like you normally do, where you're just kind of working through a book at a time, uh, well, you've been spoiled. Because uh, remember the chronological reading plan, we're going to jump all over the place between Kings and Chronicles. So buckle up. Particularly when we're in big, uh, big kings of Judah, because Chronicles does not care about the kings of Israel. Nope. Like, ah, forget those guys. But uh, <laughs> when, true. when we're talking about kings of Judah, you're going to get both stories and you're going to get to mix them together, which, yes. is, which is always really interesting. Which again, the book that we referred to last podcast, it's worth taking your time to read it. So, which is And it. use it if, if you're really struggling to keep up. That book is a synoptic harmony of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. With, or you, you with applicable can, passages from Psalms and Ezra, and I forgot there's another one yes, as well. Yes, and I'll be honest with you. I forgot to bring that home the other night, and so I had to oh. use two Bibles. Ooh. <laughs> a, same translation, two Bibles, so I could compa- compare the two. It's a must-have. Um, a little bit of work. But anyway, so then we see in First Kings uh, chapter 12, verse 21 to 24, and Second Chronicles chapter 11, 1 through 4, we're shown that Rehoboam mobilizes his army of Judah, and actually Benjamin is included in this as well. Uh, to fight against Jeroboam, he they want to recapture Israel and bring it under one kingdom again. Well, and Simeon would be in there too a little bit, I would guess, because Simeon is within Judah. So there's, like I said, the, the yeah, you you might I don't remember the 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 idea of Judah alone follows David is I don't think that's meant to be taken. It's as, geographical. Yeah, it's not meant to be taken as no one else from any other tribe. Like there would definitely be tribe members of tribes who would go to Judah. Yeah, yeah. and I and I highlight that only because you see the strong split is what happens. Like this is where the David. Uh, David's kingdom, Solomon's kingdom is split into two. And, and this was what was even prophesied to Solomon is that God's going to rip the kingdom out of his hands. Um, and this goes back to even the prophet in, interacting with Jeroboam saying, hey, here's my cloak, rip it into 12, you get 10. Uh, and so that's kind of the picture that's painted here. Uh, we see it actually playing out and happening. Uh, so Jeroboam uh, is leading Israel. Rehoboam is leading uh, Judah. And Rehoboam is trying to mobilize his army to go bring Israel back under one kingdom. Uh, and God tells them, no, don't do it because this division comes from me. Uh, and they all listen and go back to their homes. Uh, and so we see that oh, section. Wow. It's crazy. They listen to God. <laughs> what a, Things are starting off on what the right a, foot. What a crazy idea. Uh, and then we jump into first Kings chapter 12, uh, where we see verses 25 to 33. We're given a little bit of insight into Jeroboam's launch into kingship. He builds high places in Bethel and Dan, he builds golden calves. Uh, by the way, I swear I've read this somewhere before, and Jeroboam. I don't remember exactly how it ended. Uh, just kidding. We read this. It didn't end well. Um, and he did this. The reason why he did this is because he thought that if I don't do this, then the Israelites are going to go back to Judah to worship God because that's where the temple was built. Uh, and if they go back to Judah to worship God, they're going to follow Rehoboam and leave me high and dry. Yeah, remember that scorpion whip guy? He was cool. Yeah. Why don't, why don't we make him king again? Come on. Uh, and so what ended up happening is he he builds high places in Bethlehem Dan. He brings gold calves. He establishes shrines. 
Uh, and he did this to prevent Israel from going back to Judah to worship God. Uh, he actually did it so that way he could therefore have a place for them to worship in Israel. Uh, and he sets priests uh, up to monitor and to offer sacrifices and to do the work of the priesthood. Um, but the problem is these priests were not Levites uh, or of the priesthood. They actually, he expelled them and removed them and did not let them uh, do what God had called them and set them apart oh to do. So all of the priests and Levites, they ended up going up into Judah and staying with Rehoboam. Uh, but here's the thing. He didn't stop there. Jeroboam didn't stop with the golden calves or the altars. He also built shrines. Uh, goat demons was one of the things that we'll see in the, in the Chronicles reference. Um, but in essence, and then he made a festival to mimic Judah's. In essence, he's creating a uh, an identical mimic of what happens in Judah, which God ordained, uh, so that way his people would stay in Israel. And so in doing this, he is leaving or leading God's people away from worshiping Yahweh, uh, and they're worshiping their own version of Yahweh, uh, which again is what happened in the beginning of Exodus once they came to Mount Sinai and Moses left. Anyways, classic. Um, God didn't desire this, and so we see how God handles it. We will see how God handles this. Uh, we jump into Second Chronicles, which is... Uh, it gives us a continuation where we see Jer- Jeroboam is establishing a fake people of God's city is what I called it. Um, he's trying to build his own place, his own Shechem, I think is where it was at. And uh, then we see this picture where, oh, so, sorry, Chronicles is, is taking place while Jeroboam is doing this. Rehoboam is fortifying his cities. Um, and we see the contrast in Judah, which was was established in Israel. What Jeroboam is doing to build and establish his own worshiping place, Rehoboam is strengthening and fortifying his city in Judah itself. It also shows that the priests and Levites took their stand with Judah um, for at least three years. I love that there was this little line that says, for at least three years yeah, yeah. Uh, is what happened because that's how long Rehoboam led diligently, I guess. There's only so long, there's only so much you can put up with an idiot like Rehoboam. It's so true. Like, Come on, just, where's your son? He's got to be better. It's, it's true. Uh, and so then we get back into uh, 1 Kings 13. Uh, there is this weird, uh, in this passage, there's this weird encounter with for Jeroboam. Um, it took me, it, it just, it kind of took me by surprise. I actually forgot about this passage a while, uh, but it's the prophet came from Judah. There's a prophet that came from Judah to Bethel and cursed the altar of Jeroboam uh, that he was built and was actively sacrificing on in that moment. And then he prophesies of another king named Josiah that's to come. Um, it's not going to come in this, in this chapter or in this reading, it's coming later in the history, in the line of, uh, Israel and and Judah. Uh, but Jeroboam is frustrated that this prophet is cursing, um, the altar. And so he calls out, points at him to have him arrested. And when he does this, his hand withers, um, and he immediately pulls it in and, and hides it, um, and then he pleads with this man of God and asks, and we don't get a name for the man of God, but we just, that's who he's referred to as man of God. Uh, he pleads with this man of God and asks for favor that he might be healed. So the man of God prays, asks God to provide healing. Uh, God does, the hand is restored. And then Jeroboam offers him a reward. And the man of God refuses it and says that he, even he's, he's like, I'm not going to take it, nor will I eat or drink because he was invited to a, a meal with Jeroboam. It's like, I'm not supposed to eat or drink while I'm in Israel, and I'm not supposed to even head back the way I came. So he left in a different way. He left Bethel from a different way. Now, another prophet hears about this from his son and then tells the man, hey, come eat with me. The man of God says, I'm not supposed to eat or drink. And then the prophet says, no, listen, God told me you need to come eat with me. 
So this man of God goes to this prophet's house, he eats with them. And as the man of God finishes eating, this prophet then speaks on behalf of God, in essence, speaks through him to say, because you disobeyed me, you're going to die. And the man of God finishes eating and drinking, gets on a donkey, leaves, and on the road, he gets mauled by a lion. And it says that there is a man that had seen this happen. The lion was standing next to the donkey, next to the body that was laid out. Uh, and the prophet who deceived the man of God buries the man and then confirms that everything that the man of God prophesied against Israel will actually come to pass. In this moment, after all of these things have played out, Jeroboam still doesn't repent. Um, his son Abijah gets sick, and so he sends his wife disguised uh, to request healing uh, from God through the prophet Ahijah. And then we get this exchange in First Kings. So I saw before we get there, it's kind of this weird encounter moment that kind of seems like it came out of left field, um, but God is using it to ideally draw Jeroboam back to repentance. Um, draw Jeroboam to show that God will follow through with what he says he's going to follow through with because the man of God was not supposed to eat or drink, gets deceived to eat or drink by a prophet and God kills the man of God. But the lion uh, doesn't eat him, just mauls him and then leaves him there to die. And Jeroboam knows all these things are happening and he still doesn't repent. So he's trying to get Jeroboam's attention and cause and lead him to repentance. Because remember when Jeroboam was an anointed king by the an angel of the Lord, there was this tension of, do what I say, follow me faithfully. And Jeroboam didn't do that. Uh, so then we get to this point where Jeroboam's son is sick. He sends his wife disguised to request healing from the prophet. And this is where we pick up in chapter 14, verses 6 through 17. Uh, it says this, when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet. Now Ahijah was blind, so he didn't, he couldn't see. Uh, but he, because he was a prophet, he knew because the Holy Spirit informed him that this was the that this was Jeroboam's wife. Uh, so it says, when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet entering the door, he said, come in, wife of a Jeroboam. Why are you disguised? I have bad news for you, which is a great way to start a conversation. Always. It says, go tell Jeroboam, this is what the Lord of God Israel says. I raised you up from among the people, appointed you ruler over my people, tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you were not like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what is right in my sight. You behave more wickedly than all who were before you. In order to anger me, you have proceeded to make for yourself other gods and cast images, but you have flung me behind your back. Because of all of this, I'm about to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will wipe out all of Jeroboam's males, both slave and free, in Israel. I will sweep away the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it's all gone. Anyone who, that's not really a good thing to always be, to ever be uh, uh, compared to dung, FYI. So if you're ever compared that way, just. But run. it's it's good advice that if you're going to sweep away dung, make sure, you know. It's all gone. You want to get it all. Yes. You don't leave, leave any of it. Yes. Uh, anyone who belongs to Jeroboam, verse 11, and dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And anyone who dies in the field, the birds will eat. The Lord has spoken. As for you, get up and go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He alone out of Jeroboam's house will be given a proper burial because of the house of Jeroboam, because out of the house of Jeroboam, something favorable to the Lord of, to the Lord God of Israel was found in him. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will wipe out the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. Yes, even today for the Lord will strike Israel so that they will shake as a reed shakes in water. He will uproot Israel from the good soil so that he gave 
that he gave to his ancestors. He will scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they made their Asherah poles angering the Lord. He will give up Israel of Jeroboam's sins because of Jeroboam's sins that he committed and caused Israel to commit. Then Jeroboam's wife got up, left, and went to Terzah. As she crossed the threshold of the house, the boy died. And we see it continues on. The prophet's words come true. Um, and and then we kind of get to a point where we wrap up Jeroboam's life. Uh, then we're given a quick glance uh, into Judah, Judah's Rehoboam after his family tree. Uh, we see this in 1 Kings 14, 22 to 24. Judah did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And it's all of Judah. It's not just Rehoboam. It's all of Judah, which was under Rehoboam's leadership. They provoked him to jealous anger more than all, their, all that their ancestors had done when they, with the sins they committed. They also built for themselves high places, sacred pillows and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every green tree. There were even male cult prostitutes in the land. They limited all detestable, imitated, sorry, all detestable practices of the nations and the Lord has dispossessed before the Israelites. Uh, so in essence, we're seeing right here, the kingdom's falling apart. Both Judah and Israel, they're not following God. They're falling apart. They're disobeying. God is bringing judgment upon them. Uh, as we shift into Second Chronicles chapter 11, we will see that we get a little bit of a family branch of Rehoboam here. Um, because again, it's wrapping up the king's life. There's a repetitive portion in our reading, just a heads up, from 2 Chronicles 12, 13 to, to 14 and 13 to 16. So you're going to read that twice here. I don't know why it is that way, but it is that way. So enjoy reading it twice. Yeah, there you go. Um, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, we get a little more insight into the Shishak's invasion. Shishak was the pharaoh of Egypt. Um, and Shemaiah arrives in, in the Second Chronicle portion. We see Shemaiah arrive and rebukes Rehoboam and his leaders. They spent... And then they repent and humble themselves. God turns his wrath, the destruction, to servitude to Shishak. Um, and then I love this this phrase in Second Chronicles here. It says, "Besides that, conditions were good in Judah." So, yeah, you know, apart from Rehoboam's punishment, and in essence, what happens is Shishak is raised up from Egypt. Uh, it shows the weakness of both kingdoms uh, being divided. Rehoboam and Jeroboam weren't strong kings; they didn't fortify very well. Um, so Shishak raises up from Egypt, takes over the treasuries uh, of God's people in Judah, uh, and then they're then given over into servitude to Shishak as uh, kind of the pen, kind of the penance. Um, and it would have been destruction, but because of the humility and the repentance, God turns his wrath of destruction into servitude. Um, and I love the fact that it just, again, like I said, besides that, conditions were good in Judah. I just put LOL because I'm like, that's kind of a, hey, we're not dead. So things are good, I guess. Yeah, I got, I got um, that going for me, which first, is nice. Yeah. First Kings tells us, gives us another quick look at the Shishak invasion. Um, Second Chronicles 12, 13 to 16 is a repetitive uh, reading, uh, but it says this, that when Rehoboam, this is in essence, Rehoboam dies. Um, and this is this is the sad part that you you don't ever want to read about a, the, one of the kings, or I don't ever want it being read about me. Uh, but it says Rehoboam did what was evil because he did not determine in his heart to seek the Lord. Um, and it, we read that twice today uh, in the pot and the week's readings. Um, so we see Rehoboam's life done. Uh, in 1 Kings 14, 29, we have a recap of Rehoboam's life. And then are introduced to his son Abijam, who reigned for three years. Um, and it says that he walked in all the sins uh, he walked in all the sins his of his father before him committed, and he was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his ancestor David was, which is never a good a good sign. You want to be like David, not counter to David. Um, and so we get Abijam's reign was three years. 
didn't end well. Um, in Second Chronicles 13, this reading, we're given a little more insight into Abijah's life because First Kings was pretty minimal. Um, we see that there was war between Abijah and Jer- Jeroboam um, that they set up for battle in, sec- in Second Chronicles 13. He lines out, calls out Jeroboam. Jerob sets, Jeroboam sets up an ambush, and then this happens. And this is the interesting thing because when we see that he walked in all the, all the sins of his father before him, and he was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God, it doesn't mean that he didn't have moments or glimpses of hope or glimpses of goodness. And so we see this in Second Chronicles 13, verse 14 to 18, as we're looking at Abijah's life. It says, Judah turned, and this is where this, the, they're fighting Jeroboam, Abijah's leading Judah, uh, they're aware, and Jeroboam sets an ambush. In essence, he says, have part of his army on one side, and part of his army is hiding behind. So when the battle starts, the other army, so they're in essence surrounded by by uh, Jeroboam's army. It says this, Judah turned and discovered that the battle was in front of them and behind them. So they cried out to the Lord. Then the priests blew the trumpet and the men of Judah raised the battle cry. When the men of Judah raised the battle cry, God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. So the Israelites fled before Judah and God handed them over to them. Then Abijah and his people struck them with a mighty blow and 500,000 fit young men of Israel were killed. Now at this point, just so you know, Judah's army was outnumbered by Israel's almost two to one. Uh, and so the fact that they were not only surrounded, but then also be, were given victory but because the, they cried out to the Lord. Um, and it says this in verse 18, that the Israelites were subdued at that time. The Judahites succeeded because they depended on the Lord, the God of their ancestors. So it wasn't all bad with Abijah's life. But the problem is he didn't stay devoted wholeheartedly to the Lord, his God. Well, yeah, a couple of things I want to point out here. Number one, um, if you're wondering why the name switched. So oh, he's, yeah, called, he's called, yep. a, I, I say Abijam and Abijah, but it could be either way. Um, but, tomato, tomato. Yeah, exactly. So the reason it switches is because remember, Kings is written much earlier than Chronicles is. Kings seems to be written as the Kings are happening. It's being compiled, whereas Chronicles yep. is almost certainly post-exilic. Uh, so the Hebrew changes a little bit. Basically, the way that you say the name and the way you write the name changes over time. So they are the same Kings. We'll get that next week with Jehoram and Joram, I think is the two yep. the two names that he has. It's so. just going to be something to remember moving forward because there's going to be some... Some names that names are, are going to change a little bit, but yeah, yeah that's a good point. Good so there reminder. you go. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is that I, th- I think sometimes we we don't give God credit for <laughs> how um, how merciful He is with the kings. And so, and uh, spoilers, listener, we're doing we're recording two this week. So what? Because I didn't know that. Uh, because my wife is having a baby soon, and so we want to make sure we don't miss out this on week. getting yep. new content. So we're 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 doubling up the next few weeks to make sure we're we're good to go through that. Um, so, but. It was Ahab last week. I was struck by at the end of his reign. There's a there's a point where multiple times God is like, "Hey, I'm going to do this for you, and you're going to remember it because I I am Yahweh the Lord." And then he does it again, and he keeps doing it, and he's basically like, "Hey, like turn away from other gods. Like I am doing this thing for you." And so it's not like God completely shuts down after Solomon, and the people have to kind of earn his favor back. Like he gives them favor many times, and just as kind of like a show of good faith, um, and to try and bring them back into the fold of of worshiping him the way he deserves to be worshipped. And the kings just don't do it. I shouldn't say all of them, but a lot of the times the kings just don't. Uh, they don't take God up on his generosity, which is a bummer. It's true. Uh, we get First Kings fifteen six to eight. We get a quick recap. Uh, of Jeroboam's life. Um, And then 
We also get uh, the war that had between gone on between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Uh, we get a little quick inc- uh, picture of Abijah's reign uh, along with Jeroboam's war. Um, and then the reference to um, not just or a reference to him resting. Uh, and then we're introduced to the next king of Asa or next king of Judah, which is Asa. Uh, and so then we shift into Second Chronicles 14 verses one through eight, where we then get a picture of Asa's life. Um, and and I, I'm going to read this for us. It says this, Abijah rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. His son Asa became king in his place. During his reign, the land experienced peace for 10 years. So that's a good thing. Peace, finally. Um, Asa did what was good and right in the sight of the Lord. Again, this is a good turn from what he just what we just experienced. He removed the pagan altars in high places. He shattered their sacred pillars and chopped down their astral poles. He told the people of Judah to seek the Lord of their ancestors and to carry out the instruction and commands. He also removed the high places and the shrines from all the cities of Judah and the kingdom experienced peace under him. Because the land would experience peace, Asa built fortified cities in Jerusalem. No one made war with him in those days because the Lord gave him rest. Uh, so he said to the people of Judah, let's build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and doors and bars. The land is, is still ours because we sought the Lord our God. We sought him and he gave us rest on every side. So they built and succeeded. Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah bearing large shields and spears. Uh, and then also 280,000 from Benjamin. Um, all these were valiant warriors. So we get a really good introduction to Asa uh, because, and, and it's good because, again, it's coming out of Rehoboam, Jeroboam. It's coming out of these bad kings, Abijam, uh, or coming out of these kings who didn't follow God. Um, and so we're introduced to Asa. Uh, in 1 Kings 15, 9 to 15, we find that Asa's grandmother was a culprit of idol worship, uh, and he removes her from influence as queen mother. It does say that the high places were not torn down, but it says that Asa was wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his entire life. Uh, in chapter 15, verse 25 to 34, we are introduced to Nahab, or Nadab, sorry, who's the successor of Jeroboam in Israel. It says that he reigned two years and did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then we meet Basha of Issachar, who conspired against Nadab and killed him. Uh, he struck down the entire line of Jeroboam and became king. And it says that he did what was evil in the Lord's sights as well. Uh, let's just be honest, Israel kings, there's not really very many good things from you're, them. You're going to notice a lot of, that's just theme a recurring with theme. Israel's kings. It's true. Uh, so we see, and then we move into second Chronicles 14, nine to 15. It says, it talks about Asa taking on his first test as king against the Cushites. He's outmanned 1 million to about 500,000. Uh, Asa's response is he cries out to God. God brings him victory. And then a great plunder from Cush and the surrounding cities and herds. Um, in chapter 15, we find uh, there's revival, uh, meaning uh, God's people are experience prosperity once again. There's a, even a prophet of Azariah, who's son of Oded, um, comes out and uh, prophesies positively um, to Asa. And so we see this community revival that plays out, which is really encouraging and positive to see. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 16 to 22, we find the war that happens between Asa and Basha. Uh, they're kind of at war together during their reigns. Uh, Basha was making a fortress. I don't even know if that's how you say his name, but that's what I'm going to say. Um, making a fortress at Ramah, which is just outside the city or the, the, the territory of Judah, uh, to prevent anyone from leaving Judah. He wants to keep them holed up and kind of cut them off so that way they uh, aren't as able to have provisions or prosper. Um, and so Asa, there's a there's a, a king of Aram named Ben Hadad, 
who has a treaty and a peace with both Judah and Israel. And so Asa enlists Ben-Hadad to fight with him uh, and break the treaty that was made with Israel, which he does. Uh, and then once he sees that Ben-Hadad is attacking Israel, uh, Baasha quits building the fortress uh, and goes back to his cities. And then it says that Asa was able to carry off the lumber and materials from the fortress. So in essence, he plundered the, the, the fortress of Ramah uh, because Ben-Hadad helped him uh, thwart the, the attack and the, the fortress being built. Second um, Chronicles 16, 1 through 10 shares a similar account of the fortress at Ramah uh, and Ben-Hadad's loyalty to Asa. We are given a rebuke to Asa uh, in Second Chronicles here uh, because he reached out to Ben-Hadad and didn't request or trust the Lord to bring victory like the previous battles, um, which was interesting because this prophet Hanani comes to him and, and rebukes him, says, hey, because you trusted Ben-Hadad and you didn't trust in the Lord, uh, you're going to suffer punishment for that. Uh, God's not going to protect or provide for you anymore. And so uh, Asa does what any righteous king would do and gets mad uh, and throws the seer Hanani in the prison and mistreats the people. Uh, that's not what a good righteous king would do. Uh, but Asa's mad. And now whether he's mad at the uh, rebuke from Hanani or he's mad at himself for not requesting and f- crying out to the Lord, uh, there's not clarity here. But he starts mistreating some of the people. Uh, and then we get to first go back to First Kings, then we'll read actually a section uh, backwards into f- chapter 15 of First Kings. Um, but we are then introduced to the, the prophet Jehu, um, who's the son, who's the son of Hanani, speaking against Basha, um, saying that Basha is going to be eradicated. Um, then we're introduced to several kings. We're introduced to Elah, uh, we're introduced to Zimri, and then we're introduced to Omri. Elah is a two-year reign uh, where Zimri was commander of half his chariots and killed Elah, uh, Elah, sorry, and killed, and he, and then Zimri becomes king. Zimri became king and he killed the house, the entire house of Basha. Uh, he was king for seven days, so that's great. Uh, and then once the army heard what they did, they actually rejected Basha uh, and made Omri king. Uh, and when he realized what, when he realized what he has done, he burned down the citadel, uh, a city that he was in. And he burned it down, the building, on himself, and he killed himself. Uh, and so he died uh, by his own hand, uh, I guess by his own fire. There you go. So Zimri only was king for seven days. Uh, Omri reigned for 12 years, six years in Terza, and then he built a city in Samaria. Uh, spoiler, he did what it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. What? FYI. Uh, and then we shift in the reading to Second Chronicles 16. There's a ton of reading today, this week. Second um, Chronicles 16, 11 to 14, and chapter 17, um, chapter... 16, we come to the end of Asa's reign. Um, chapter 17, we're introduced to Asa's son, Jehoshaphat, uh, as the next king. Uh, and this is what it says about Jehoshaphat, verse, starting in verse 1. It says, his son Jehoshaphat became king in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He stationed troops in every fortified city of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. That's a win. He did not seek the Baals. But he sought the God. He but sought God, the God of his father, and walked by his commands, not according to the practices of Israel. So the Lord established the kingdom in his land. Then all of Judah brought him tribute, and he had riches and honor in abundance. His mind rejoiced in the Lord's ways, and he again he again removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. Uh, we continue on to see uh, Jehoshaphat had an educational reform where he sent officials and, and Levites out into Judah to teach them about God's law uh, and how they should live as God's people. This is a huge thing um, and actually then provides 
another source of sense of revival. Uh, and then the terror of God was on all the surrounding nations. Uh, and Jehoshaphat grew stronger uh, time and time again, and they had peace as well. Uh, First Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, were introduced to a little-known prophet named Elijah. Story shifts from the kings for a time, and we're introduced to this little guy who not really many people know. If you've been in church, it's kind of an unknown prophet yeah, named Elijah. Uh, just kidding. Who was a prophet in Israel during, its, the, during the time of King Ahab. Um, and we see his king... Or his call, this is where we end the week's reading, is the call of Elijah. Uh, and I'm going to read it because it's a good way to end. It says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, uh, As the Lord God of Israel lives, in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Then the Lord, word of the Lord came to him, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide at the Wadi Cherith, which ent- where it enters the Jordan. You are to drink from the Wadi. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he proceeds to do what the Lord commanded. Elijah left and lived in the Wadi Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. The ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening, and he would drink from the Wadi. And all after a while, the Wadi dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So we get this call where all of a sudden we're introduced to this character, Elijah. We're introduced that there's a famine coming, that God directs him to go sit at uh, the Wadi water source, which enters into the Jordan River. And he's there getting provided for food by ravens. And then as the, there's no land or no rain to land, the river dries up. And then what happens next is we'll see next week. But uh, that's where we end. We're introduced to Elijah. We've run through a gauntlet of kings. Um, but that's kind of where we ended up at the end of this week. All right. Well, speaking of a gauntlet of kings, Aaron, let's rank some kings. Okay, we got a lot of kings this week, so <laughs> yes, we're we gonna. I'm, I'm I'm curious how like I think there's some where I'm I don't know if we need to go through the trouble of putting them like in exact rankings, like who's better than who, just putting them into tiers. But we'll we'll see. Um, okay, so controversial ones. I think he'll be the hardest one to rank this week. Solomon. Where do we put Solomon? I think coming into this year, I was very much in the he's in a bad king. He's in the bad king camp. Oh, Um, really? I was. I think I'm more in like, he's an okay king. And I think, I think part of it is like I had, and I I don't know why I had this in my head, but I think I, in my head, he was a, he, he had turned away from the Lord much earlier in his reign where it actually does seem like it happens a lot later. later. Um, The Ecclesiastes kind of coming to the end of his life and, and turning back is, is a good thing. At the same time, he introduces idol worship again into Israel, which is not a good deal. And, and God is obviously angry enough with him that he's going to split the kingdom. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know that he's that different from Saul, who we ranked as kind of like the baseline. He's an okay king. Yeah. Although in, in fairness to Saul, Saul never uh, introduces idol worship. Saul leads the people in worship of Yahweh yeah. the whole time. So... Uh, is that the tier that you're thinking of at least okay? Yeah, total transparency. I forgot we had an okay category. I was thinking good because oh I don't think he's gosh. bad. Uh, but okay is right. I think I would actually – I would put him ahead of Saul. Ahead of Saul. Okay. I, I would mean, put him ahead of Saul. He's got the temple. He's got the – he's got higher highs than Saul for yes, sure. Yes, and, and I would say his lower lows are not as low as Saul's. Okay. Um. The reason why Saul was rejected is because he was not, he was impatient. He cared more about the approval of man. And he didn't, he didn't honor God's 
covenant or law as he should have. Solomon is on the curtails of David, right? He's writing the curtails of David. Right, right. But he was a young king who was who had an incredible moment with God saying, I want wisdom, not riches or wealth or long life. Um and and yeah, he he introduced idol worship. He he did some of those things. Um but again, I again I think we talked about this last year as we were trying to work through this. Like what's more important, the way they end or the way they, they – the majority of their life? Well, yeah, you have um, to kind of take the and whole reign. And then what determines a good king? Is it what – well, he was wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord because uh, that was Asa. All, all his life he was that way. So um, I would still put Solomon ahead of I'm good with Saul that. and put him as an okay king. Okay, so we have Solomon ranked as an okay king right ahead of Saul, Rehoboam. He's a bad king. Yeah, okay. I feel like we're pretty good. He's, he, to me, he's top tier bad king. He's not uh, – um, he's not as bad as some of the kings that we get. There's still a gap between bad and okay. Like it's not yeah, like yeah. he's just barely out of the okay. No, he's a bad king. Yeah, yeah. but he's probably one of the better bad kings. Uh, Jeroboam the first. Spo- yeah, spoiler. There's going to be a Jeroboam the second in uh, what in a little just bit. Kidding. But all right, Jeroboam the first is a bad king. Abijam, I'm guessing we'll go. I mean, do you want him to put him in the okay? Do you want to put him in the bad? I don't think he's a good king. No, he's definitely not a good king. Uh, I would. That's a hard one. Seeks after the Lord in that one spot, but that's kind of the only spot we hear of it. Yeah. I guess that that's what makes it okay for me. I would put him as like a low okay king. Low okay? Mm. Because he sought the Lord. Like there was a moment that, of it. He sought the Lord that one time. <laughs> but did Jeroboam? That's true. Did right. Nadab? Did Basha? We'll stick, we'll stick him behind Saul for now. And again, listeners, these yeah, it's going to Yeah, it's going to change as we add more kings, but all right. Abijam is there. Asa, I feel like good king. He's the first in that good tier. Yeah, but the way he ends, dude, is is disappointing. Well, that's what so he's a low he's a low good. Yeah, see, he's to, a low. to me, the way he ends is what takes him from great to good. As that's opposed right. to, yeah. I don't think it takes him that's, from good to fair. from good to okay. Well, and I was just thinking again, I gotta remember the tiers. We have a great, good, okay, bad. Yep, five tiers. Or I guess it's A through F, if you want to think of it that way. That doesn't help. But. Okay. Um, all right. Next up we have Nadab. Bad. Yep. I think we're pretty I think we're gonna be pretty easy on these last few here. Uh we've got Basha. Bad. Yep. And then we've got Ela. Bad. Zimri. Bad. Omri. Bad. Yep. Any of them deserving of the worst? <laughs> or is it kind of uh are we thinking just bad across the board for all I these think they're guys? bad across the board. All right. I'm, I'm take- I mean, Omri is probably, probably the bottom of the bad right now because he has a negative legacy, not to get too far ahead, but he's there. Like you'll see his name come up later on, but that's where I would land. All right. So there you go. It's a uh, one. We have one. Okay. King and Sol. No, two. Okay. Kings. We have Solomon and then maybe Abijam. Uh, we have Asa, who is a good king, and then the rest of them are bad kings. Uh, but there's a wide, there's a wide disparity of, like I said, Rehoboam. I think is he's a bad king, but he's he's not as bad as some of these other kings that we're going to okay, see. Okay, so for all our listeners who are visual, are we going to be able to see? Yeah, the I'll list? have the. Uh, I will put. I will f- attach I will, the updated graphic in the show notes. Yep, yeah, I will. It'll be in the show notes. You can click a link on it. You'll be able to see it, and then I'll I'll, I'll update it every time we do it now because we're going to be ranking a bunch of kings. So I'll, yep, I'll update it's every coming. Time we do it. All right. Well. That uh, wraps it up for Ranking Kings this week. Let's talk a little bit about what we learned today. 
Uh, for me, it's funny because it seems like talking about Solomon was so long ago. <laughs> just it's so it was, true. It was the very beginning of the podcast. Are you saying I'm long-winded? Uh, no, I'm saying we just we, I'm saying we covered true. a lot this week. Um, for me, it's like, what does it look like to be too wise for your own good? Hmm. And and I and I want to be careful because I don't think if if we're defining wisdom as as fearing the Lord and and walking in under His commandments, I don't think you can you can't do that too much yeah, for your own. That's good. That's true. Um, but I, I, the more and more I read Ecclesiastes, the more and more it's it seems like someone who's just too in their head for their own good, um, and instead of trusting the Lord and instead of following in His commandments, it's having to. Um, and it's 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 hard because I, I I've met people like this is what I is what I think about where it's people who just have to completely overthink everything and and I want to be careful because I'm a thinker right like I I want to make sure that everything I believe is reasoned through um, I don't want there to be just blind leaps of faith in my life because I don't think that's what God calls us to I think He calls us to faith um, but I don't think it's ever without like completely without evidence or anything like that um, but I, I do think there comes a point where you can you can you can so badly need all of the affirmation, all of this kind of overthinking it, overthinking it, overthinking it, and you never just hit a point where uh, you have a relationship with God and you can't find joy in your relationship God with God or joy in the world because you see um, the way and, – and this is the other thing too, I guess, is if you're so in tune with the way that the world is not the way that it will be one day, um, as Christians, right, that that is a sad thing. That shouldn't be a crippling thing. Because of course the world is not the way that it will be upon the return of Christ. That was never the promise that God made. Um, and so, as as Christians, we live in a broken world. We know we live in a broken world. Yeah, that's the way it is. Um, but we shouldn't let the fact that we live in a broken world rob us of our joy of the joy of our relationship with God. Yeah, it's so good. Um, and I, I mean, I would just say I think it comes down to even what I was kind of alluding to in, in ranking these good and bad kings or whatever. Um, is just this whole idea of, of wholehearted devotion. Uh, it's not, I mean, you saw the compromise and, and I'll be honest with you, it's, it's really easy to become comfortable. I mean, um, we talked about a ton of them, but this was like Asa's issue, right? He, in two instances, he called out to God for help in, in a fight. In the third instance, he kind of got in his own mind, oh, I'll just rely on Ben-Hadad. Um, but it's just this picture of like, where am I not wholly devoted to the Lord? Like, where am I not... Um, surrendering my life and saying, God, I want your best, your will, and I trust you for everything. Um, and and that was Asa's issue. He trusted God in these two instances, but he didn't trust God in this bottom one. And part of it was he probably had an overinflated sense of ego. We're good. There's peace. There's revival. Things are good. I don't need to bother God with this. I don't I don't need God for this. And that's a problem. And so I think it's it's really this challenge of continually evaluating wholehearted devotion to the Lord because it's never something we're going to attain, to be honest with you, but God's grace and his mercy is so extravagant that it is a daily reminder and daily surrender uh, to to lean wholeheartedly into uh, trusting God. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we did have a question come in this week, Yay! so let's go ahead and answer that. All right, so it says, greetings. My question is on 2 Chronicles 7.14. I might be reading too much into this, but the phrase, then I will hear from heaven, is very interesting and also puzzling. I would appreciate your thoughts. Uh, So just to kind of get the context of that, it says, then Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and all, all that Solomon planned to do 
in the house of the Lord and his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are by my name or who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their lands. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Uh, yeah, so I, I think it's pretty it's pretty straightforward, to be honest. It's just kind of a poetic way of saying that God will hear from his throne. Yeah. Um, and so you want, you want to be careful because I think you don't want to, you don't, you don't want to make it seem like mythology where like Zeus, he's sitting up and watching. Yeah, exactly. Like there's a, there's God and he's up on Mount Olympus and looking down like, no, like God is obviously everywhere. He's omnipresent, uh, which means everywhere at the same time. Um, but it, 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 it does, I think it's a, it's a way of God saying essentially like, Hey, when, when I bring punishment, when things happen, if you repent and you pray, I will hear that. I will hear the prayers of the temple in my throne. I will hear it from heaven. Um, heaven also, I think this is one of the things that we have to be careful with. It does not always mean the spiritual realm where God um, where God dwells. And again, that's a weird way of saying it because God dwells everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, but sometimes like in, in, the word heavens is also can just mean the sky. Like yeah. in, in, especially in the Old Testament, that is a lot of the way it's used is in the, like in the beginning when it says God created the heavens and the earth, it means the sky and the ground. It doesn't mean the spiritual realm and the planet earth, right? So um, it can all, like, I, I think it can be poetic language. It, 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 this one might be referring to the spiritual realm. It also might just be referring to like the way we think of God is looking up into the sky. Um, and so saying like, I will hear you from there. It doesn't say the heavens. It does say heaven there. So that's where I, I, it kind of leads me one way or the other, but um yeah, basically don't overthink it. Like don't think like God on a throne or anything like that in, in the sense of like he is one person dwelling in one place. I would say it's just a poetic way of saying that God will hear where he is at the prayers of his people. Yeah, and I think I think that's that's right. I think it's a great explanation. So I don't need to add anything. Oh, there you be. Well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we are not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. Uh, they're in, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.